So remember, I've always talked about Miles and Barron in terms of uh, development process. It's funny, really. I suppose when everyone talks about uh, property development, they talk about the process. And hopefully it's now familiar that it's the process is the idea of you know, thinking through a development from its start to its finish and what's involved in that, buying a piece of land, the planning of it, the consenting of it, the constructing of it, the selling of it, the actual occupation and use of it at the end of the process. So that's why we use the word process a lot. So Miles and, Bar and Barron's is, is that sort of model that, that you've got uh, some theoretical um, access to. Um, that this sort of sits within. I just sort of basically sort of talked about how we're going to talk about today's uh, stuff, which sort of leads on from the project preparation stuff from last week. I called it paperwork, but it's all that sort of thinking through what needs to be done, thinking through what contracts need to be done, etc. Now we're into this sort of project delivery sort of component. I think for me, uh, sometimes this word commissioning can be confusing, because sometimes you could think of the word commissioning as in you're commissioning a project, uh, like you are the commissioner, and uh, for a certain fee, you commission a project. Commissioning, uh, think of it in terms of wrapping up the development, how it will all complete. Um, you know, when you decommission a power plant, for instance, thinking of the opposite of that, when you commission something, it's like turning the lights on and everyone using the particular building. So it's the wrap-up, it's the completion. So think of commissioning like that, not in terms of commissioning a project. So just, just bear that in mind in, in terms of some of the thinking. Uh, just as the last two sessions, really, this, these were the sort of the, the useful um, pieces of resources. There was a sort of the uh, advisory meets sort of um, lobbying um, sort of company organization in terms of uh, the councils and the certain guides and um, good practice, all those sorts of stuff. And then there was a sort of the MB uh, sort of wider considerations of what rules and regs and acts and stuff like that are start to feed through. Uh, but we've got to remember that a lot of the actual operationalizing of this stuff is done at a, a TA level, territorial authority, which is essentially a district council or a city council to you or I. So when you see TA, you know territorial authority and the operationalizing of things. But these, these wider sort of more national sort of guidances, lobby groups, um, advocacy groups in terms of um, councils that act on the behalf of uh, construction companies and, and by default uh, development companies because they build in construction firms. Other reference points, you guys will be very familiar with the QV cost builder system given the, the work that you're doing and sort of costing out the project. It used to be Rawlinson's construction handbook, I think it was about 2014, 2015 when that sort of got taken over by um, quotable value and they started doing the, uh, the cost builder online stuff, so which you've had access to and, and you're using as part of your costing exercise in your assignment. Uh, progressive building is just an old trade journal that you don't need to worry about too much. So today, uh, sort of the, the more sort of conceptual theoretical ideas that we're, we're focusing in on is this idea of construction management. You've got to remember that you could do a whole degree in construction management, but obviously not doing a whole degree in construction management. A lot of this is sort of tied up with sort of property considerations and how construction is a, is, a, is a piece, a task, a project within the development process. So uh, I like to think of these two, two points here, the project management and the development margin management. We're effectively conflating these two, um, these two ideas. You know, talking about project management more broadly, you can talk about whatever the project is, whether it's the project of completing this course, you know, that's sort of 
broader and there's sort of different ways and different projects you can consider. But for the most part, in terms of what we've been doing throughout the course, is just focusing a project as in property development. So, and in doing so, there's all the sort of the, the general considerations that you consider within a within project management, which is things like timelines, budgets, risk, team management, and value realization. You know, more broadly, whatever you're doing, if it's not necessarily a property development project, it could be some other project that's making some money, some e-commerce e project as a, as, a, as, a, you know, as a broader example. But we're bringing this all into property development, so this is exactly the same as what we're covering here in this second point, this development management or development project management. Uh, and within that, as we, we've just all been uh, thinking through here in the last sort of minute or two, we're going from uh, design all the way through to commissioning. Uh, and you take sort of textbook sort of jargon of um, statements of what that means. Here it says it, um, it's the professional role of coordinating and managing a project through all its phases from inception to completion. So, you know, you could replace the word phase with um, process if you need to. So we're just sort of basically you know, making a difference. So we're sort of uh, conflating these two ideas, but we're saying that construction management is just slightly different in the, in the way that management's attached to construction. And for us as developers, it's that smaller component, that, that piece in the wider puzzle in terms of the actual building out of the project. It's not the, the planning bit. It's not the financial planning sort of component. It's, it's the actual spades in the ground type sort of uh, work that needs to be initiated, prepared for, and delivered. Again, um, yeah, I mean, this construction management can go very much in depth as we need to, but we're just thinking more broadly in terms of the construction manager role, and here these slides start to think through um, you know, how that construction management role is slightly different to what a development manager would uh, be. Um, essentially here we're sort of saying that the construction management component Maybe undertaken as a, a professional role for a client in return for a fee. Could be in different ways. Remember, we spent um, quite a bit of time last week thinking about traditional approaches, those sorts of dual functional approaches, the design and build. Uh, we talked about partnership approaches as well, um, or it might be just the owner uh, taking it on themselves. But here we can say that, well, the construction management component could be headed up by the main contractor if it was that sort of traditional top down approach where um, you have a, a design that cascades down, I use that sort of phraseology, or it might be certain functions, the architect um, that's that's been uh, assigned to, to do some of the management, they might bring in that particular construction management company to help them along, or it might be a specialist manager in some, some regard, I think a good example to bring in there could be something like a, a local authority, you know, there'll be a construction manager for, say, City Council, so they might be more specialised to sort of public considerations. I think this uh, this point here about you know alternatively it might be undertaken by a more entrepreneurial role by developers seeking development profit. So they might, you know, I use the example of say Simon, he's quite a small scale developer, isn't he? You know, he might be someone who's sort of a bit more entrepreneurial and taking on that role of construction manager as well as taking care of the bigger development that, that's on hand here. So I think through that, you know, it might not necessarily be. Um, uh, relinquished to a, uh, an entity in itself, it might be the developer themselves that take on some of that construction management um, uh, role. And so that that consideration, I think, you know, it says here you know, the developer must decide what management role 
they're taking on uh, and where their abilities start and end and where their time constraints start and end. I think a nice way to think about that uh, aspect is whether they're going to spend a lot of time on site, you know, looking over the shoulder of all the different things that are happening on the site, or whether they're more bureaucratic and sit back and deal with all sorts of contracts and um, you know, getting on the phone, making sure that things are happening, you know, using communication channels to make sure things are happening. So there's certain lines of, of, of how much they're going to um, be actually actively on site or not on site in, in how they manage things. And that's all going to come down to just what I alluded to before, the delivery system, you know, whether it's uh, you know, how much work's been done in that preparation stage, how detailed the contracts are in terms of who does what in that delivery system. In terms of uh, construction management tasks, so this is a sort of a, a little bit of a tick list, but I think for us to be aware there's coordination, sort of considerations, the construction management you know, is going to be tasked to do. Uh, this coordination of all the different contractors, so all the different tradies that might be playing a part, electricians, plumbers, etc. you know, all the um, different different contractors and they're going to be coming on at different periods of time so it all has to sort of dovetail and, and sit together in, in the appropriate format so as well as coordinating making sure that you know, all the contractors know when and what they're doing and the manager sort of has a you know a view of when that's all going to be you know, orchestrating when that's all happening there's always the, the materials as well so as well as the actual contractors and when they're going to be involved in the project and uh, leaving the project at different points in time throughout the construction phase uh, there's the materials that are going to have to be coordinated uh, in terms of what's coming on site and at what time. Um, you know, there's no point having all the end product stuff, all the fixtures and fittings coming at the start of the project when they're needed more at the end of the project. So that's that sort of coordination role there. Uh, consultants coordination and, and TA, remember territorial authority inspections. So these are all the sort of um, uh, making sure it's up to code, building code. You're going to have all those inspectors coming on site at a particular point. So there's a Coordination in terms of when they're, you know, certain consultants, maybe more towards the start of the project, you know, sort of market analysis, etc., that you guys have been engaged in, uh, those those particular consultants, you know, whoever it is, your colleagues, whatever, if it's a big project, uh, need to be coordinated in some way. So there's a certain involvement there in terms of uh, construction management. It's going to be, depending on the uh, delivery method, that's, uh, you know, the procurement method that was chosen, there might be some ambiguities and some details that need ironing out as the project moves along. So it's going to be the role of the construction project manager to make sure those details are, are set more defined as it moves along. There might be some ambiguities in the contract. It might just say flooring, or it might just say walls, or it might just say roof. But there might be some spe um, specifics that, that need ironing out in terms of colours or, or type of flooring, you know, whether it's wooden, whatever. You know, those sorts of details would need to be thought through, you know, particularly as, as projects change, circumstances change, alternatives might have to be sought. And as part of those tasks, you know, given that coordination role and, and starting to work through the um, definitions more and sort of pivoting and trying to deal with certain circumstances, there's, there's all the, the document, the paper, paperwork, the correspondence, and there's a monitoring function as well just to make sure that things are happening at the right time. Furthermore, obviously cost is going to be there, so making sure that costs are minimised at certain points in time. So it's that project, uh, construction manager sort of, I use the phrase, breathing down the neck of certain people to make sure that things are, um, are not going blown out of budget and that costs are being adhered to. 
uh, things like um, pain for a particular um, part of the process, you know, certain, depending on the contracts, certain contractors are going to have to be agreed to be paid at a certain point in time, so they're going to have to make sure they meet that. And certainly, um, as you use about change and, and circumstances, there's a nice sort of three levels here in terms of different stakeholders that might have to be uh, mindful of. So there could be sort of developer-driven changes, builder-driven changes, or end-user-driven changes here. So there could be things, you know, developer-driven changes. I'm just going to give some examples just straight off the top of my head, really. But it could be the developer, they might, you know, for your site, for instance, they, someone like Simon might say, actually, we've just been um, given the option to buy the third site along, the next um, the next plot along from where we're building. So we might want to actually build and think through an integration of another set of townhouses as part of the project. So that's going to have to be all thought through and built in on top of the existing project. So that's very developer-driven. They've suddenly got the option to acquire more land around the site, and they're going to think through, well, how can we maximize this and, and use this to what we've already contracted in? So that would be a developer-driven change. It might be a builder driven change. Some of the contractors, for instance, who are building uh, the project out might have to, they might have uh, got another project on the go. So they're sort of saying, well, we actually have to reduce our time frame because we need to do this other project. Is there a way that we can draw, you know, bring our time forward? And it's for the, you know, the construction manager to sort of try and uh, deal with those builder-driven changes. And then end-user driven changes. So this might be, could be something like, you know, those are, those are sort of moving into these us these townhouses it might be someone who's willing to pay a lot of money off, um, to occupy those buildings who are disabled for instance and they might want some stair lifts or something like that so that'd be a nice example of a, a um, particular end user driven change that, that's going to have to be thought through by the uh, construction management team amongst all the other people within within the committee and then managing health and safety obviously health and safety we think risk you guys are going to be looking at those risks or considerations and and all the implications of costs and risk and um, repercussions of, of managing uh, good health and safety. So obviously the, the construction manager doesn't work in isolation. He's got other sort of stakeholders to engage with. So sometimes you have a lot of these um, what we call project control groups. I think I, a nice way to think of this alternatively is like a, a steering group. So a group of people who are going to have some sort of um, steer on how the project is successful or not. So this is the committee with responsibility for ensuring the smooth delivery of the building. Uh, the core membership of the group will remain constantly consist of, of these five uh, typologies of, of people. So you have the main developer and then making sure that their particular goals are met, the construction manager who's sort of the focus of attention here. Uh, site manager, I start to allude to this idea that you know, people on site, not on site in terms of coordinating the whole project people getting their hands dirty, people not getting their hands dirty. The clerk of works, I think that's probably something that's, uh, you can spell that out as people who do the inspections, for instance, making sure that the, col uh, the, the quality of what's been uh, built out is right and it's going to meet particular codes and regs and, and, and those sorts of things. So uh, the, the people on site ensuring quality, essentially. And then, you know, it's not, a lot of this work's not just done by those people orchestrating and coordinating things, there's project assistance, and then the uh, office administration folk that are going to have to be engaged as well. 
And it's, it's important, I suppose, that these people get together because they're different layers and different levels of, of authority and different tasks that they're going to be assigned to doing, the administrators versus the developers. They're going to see problems and issues that need to be tackled. So talking this through in a sort of committee, that's all going to start to um, source itself and, and be able to be ironed out at various multi-level multi sort of um, issue solving and problem solving. And then this, um, so I suppose this, this particular slide is looking at you know, the members of these groups might change over time. I think that's quite um, um, quite obvious in terms of circumstances of, of who might actually join the committee and not join the committee, but also depending on the phase, and, and if, particularly if it's like a 20-year project, project, if it's a big regeneration project, if it's a big large-scale site, not just a, a small townhouse project like you guys are doing, it could be you know, other parties might need to be involved and, and things like uh, end user representatives certainly uh, public participation you know, the developer game as we sort of alluded to right at the start is quite sensitive all the not in my backyard type sort of approaches to people getting upset if a development starting to encroach on their own rights so having public participation might be part of that uh, at different phases at the start of the project and towards the end it might have or if there's certain issues that start to come up involving the public uh, is important. You know, the end user might not necessarily just be the building itself, it's those that are affected by the building. When we think about parking and uh, use of services, etc., surrounding that particular development. And then local authority rep representatives as well, who might have to deal you know, from a public-facing um, uh, format in terms of you know, what their authority is to try and uh, change the interests of the local community. as we start to get towards the um, we're making good time so I think this is the sort of the technical stuff and it's sort of tools and instruments to help one manage projects whether that's a development project or as we're sort of narrowed to here in terms of a construction project and if I just talk you through this sort of the, the broad idea here and then I'll just move out of the slides and, and just talk through some of the network analysis stuff I mean a timetable approach this should be familiar to all of you in education. You all have a timetable. You all have like weekly timetables, monthly timetables, set in a sort of a calendar, and you know what you're doing at each particular time of day and how much time is allocated in terms of duration to that particular time in the day. So that, that would be your typical sort of timetable approach. So it's all very focused around blocks of time. Then you have this sort of Gantt chart approach, which you'll probably picked up through the work you're doing in assignment three is very task orientated isn't it all the sort of individual tasks all lined up that you have to do and then there's a visual representation of each task where it sits over time so this first bit this timetable is all time orientated this is task orientated but set over time so it's a nice way of sort of visualizing how this is all going to run out where thing particular tasks overlap for instance is, is um, handy as, as, a, as another instrument, another tool to, uh, to get you where to, you want to be at the end of the project. And then we have this sort of network analysis, and this starts to feed into ideas of critical path, thinking through durations, thinking through, I, I call it sort of packets of work or packages of work, and how they interrelate with each other. So it's again a little bit more uh, task, but set around an actual sort of small scale project tasks. Um, 
you know, or packages, a package, work package, would be a nice way of thinking about it now, I suppose. Um, and I think the focus here is this sort of critical path method. Um, and we use terms like nodes. So these are, a node is sort of like, a, think of it as a, uh, like a transport point of view where rail lines will come in and they might branch off into other other different stations and other different locations. So nodes are the actual stations and the, and the path is the, the train line between those particular nodes. Uh, so there's sort of a sort of like a logical flow. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll um, shift away from the slides and just Managed to just provide for you via the um, the learn site. This is just an example of these sorts of critical path analysis, looking at pathways and nodes. Uh, so what hopefully you can see here, um, you can see. This. Everyone okay? Everyone keeping up? Yeah. Cool. So this sort of stuff is. Another nice, neat little tool to be aware of. We don't need to delve too much into the maths, and we need to be aware that this is sort of the, the theoretical, conceptual idea behind it. And it all depends on what's in each of these work packages. And, and for me, a way to communicate to you, a work package could be something like securing finance. You know, So that A could be securing finance. Or this work package B could be securing finance using a finance consultancy expert, for instance. So there could be different options that people take in these, these particular work packages. This could be um, securing all the planning consents and building consents. And this could be the construction work package. So we can see how the path sort of moves between these uh, different work packages start to finish. And then we start to, we can make this a little bit more scientific by applying some numbers around it. And these numbers could be effectively the amount of time it takes. So it could be, say, two weeks or two months, two years. Uh, and then you can see sort of overall, if you went through that ACD to the finish, you start to take eight weeks, eight months, eight years. So it's sort of a way of scientifically thinking around how you sort of move through the different different paths. And it could take different courses. I mean, this if we went through the this particular uh, path and used a, a consult, you know, a specialist consultancy for securing finance might take a bit longer, but it gives you more options. You could go down the C path or the E path if you go through that particular approach. So that's sort of the broad principles here at the top. And then we can start to drill into the science even more. So this particular approach here, uh, again, we're moving from start to finish, a nice way to start Familiarizing yourself with this concept is uh, looking in the well. Let's look at what each one, each of these work packages represents. So you've got A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. So that's the activity. I've got the work package just for ease of understanding. Immediate predecessors. So that's just um, when you look at C, for instance, this work package here. If you look in the top left of each box, that's the descriptor of, of the work package. So you'll see this one is. Top left A, so that's work package A. Top left B, work package B, C, D. So when we look at, say, C, work package C, uh, the immediate predecessor, i.e. the thing that goes before it, the, the critical step before it, uh, it says is, is A. So we can visualize that. We go from A to C. So that's what this immediate predecessor means. It's just what package pre is the predecessor before you do, you know, what task is before it. Yeah. 
So just to re-familiarise, just make sure that we're keeping on the same page. Each of these work packages have got a letter attached to it, and that's represented by the letter in the top left-hand corner of each one. So this is A, this is B, C, D, E, F, G, and finish. Uh, this line here, in terms of describing what's what, is immediate predecessors. So it's just basically saying, if you read off which activity, which one's coming before it. And then we're working on time. So each package is expected to take a certain amount of time. So for package A, this A here, we expect it to be about seven weeks. So it's using a time period of weeks. And so if you look at the bottom left-hand part of each box, you'll see that, that number corresponding to each particular work package. So activity A, taking seven weeks. If we look at this one here, there's the A and there's the seven. Uh, if we went through this work package, which is work package B, take nine weeks. So that, that's all this information transposing onto each of the different work patterns. And what we can see, if we, if we ignore the, this, this idea of slack, which I'll talk about in a second, uh, the, essentially what, what you read off is that you go from zero. If this is a, for, for work package A, if it's a seven-week project, it would take zero weeks, moving up to seven weeks at the end of that work package. And then you would move into the next phase here, where you'd go from seven weeks, which was your previous seven weeks that you've just done. And then you'd add on to that another 12 weeks, because you've, this particular work package takes 12 weeks. So seven plus 12 is your 19. And then you'd follow that through to the next package and, and, and so forth. So... Um, the added complication and the extra bit of uh, reality is each of these work packages won't necessarily take the time that's allocated to it. So this A might not necessarily take seven weeks. It could take nine weeks. There's two weeks slack in there. So hopefully you're all fine with the idea of the term slack. You know, you've got another extra two weeks should you need it or that could potentially happen in that particular project. So if you add two extra slacks, be going from those two, two extra slacks up to nine weeks. And then you can take that forward into, in, into the next uh, particular work package and add that on. So that's the only sort of additional sort of complexity to this, is this bringing in a numerical amount of slack that you can put onto each particular work package. And, and then it's just a case of adding on what the maximum amount of time it could be when you sort of move through all these different steps. Uh, so... And they're the variables, really. It's sort of what the package is, how long that package usually takes, give or take some slack, and then whether you can, and then just adding that on to as you move through each individual step so you get to the finish. Um, and I think is that fairly self-explanatory in terms of you know obviously you have to work through the maths for each individual box, but you can see that this sort of if you're having the maximum amount of slack, it's going to take longer as, as you build that in. I think what's not explained here is uh, ideas around critical path. And I see critical path is if, say, imagine that E and F didn't exist, and there was an option here to go through A or B. So I use that example of sourcing the finance yourself or working out the finance through a specialist organization. Um, you know, this would take three times as, you know, uh, three units of time, and this would take you two units of time. But if E and F didn't exist, everyone would still have to go to point D, which is 
I use that example of securing, say, planning consent or building consent. So even if you organize your finance through these two different routes, you're still going to have to go through C, D to get to the finish line. So you, arguably that point C is quite critical to get into the finish line. Um, you can, you've got choices here in terms of A and B, but not in C. Everyone's got to go through that critical component. Yeah, so that's all we mean. It sounds very fancy, critical path analysis, but it's just what part, what work package is really, really important to make sure that the project goes ahead and what could be a blockage in the system. Yeah. I just talked at the start of the session about, you know, we're starting to funnel down into all your assessments and things that you need to do, so you're in a critical path of your studies. Analogy I'll, I'll make for you guys. So that's as far as you need to go, really, in terms of understanding what the, the basics of the concept of that is. And I think we're just laid on top of this ideas of sort of contingencies and slack in the system. Is that okay? As a as an idea, I'm guessing most of you are okay with that. Yeah. All right. So so that's how this feeds into this idea of a, a, a network analysis. So if we sort of go back a step and just look at the sort of the ideas behind it, so network analysis, maximizing project timeline by breaking down individual tasks and their interrelationships in a logical sequence. Now we read that, now we just sort of put a bit of energy into that model. I think that should make a lot of sense now, I guess. Um, shows independence between the tasks. You can sort of see it in a, in a logical flow, I guess. Um, so I think that just, just seems a lot more straightforward now that we're going through that example. BIM. So have you guys heard of BIM? Building information modeling? Has that sort of come up in any of your courses yet? No? So this is sort of the, the construction folk really like this sort of thing. It's been going... It's sometimes seen as the you know the new fancy tool, uh, the new AI and all the rest of it, but it's essentially sort of digitizing buildings on a screen. And use, because we can digitize things, we can manage it a lot easier and use these tools and these instruments to help us. You know, we're in an age now where we're sort of half robot, aren't we? That's why it's artificial intelligence. And it's, you know, it's the same sort of stuff for, uh, for, for, uh, for buildings as well. I think... A nice way to think about BIM is imagine that you could use a fancy um, tool like I've used AutoCAD as an example a few times. So you can use these sort of um, instruments that will draw these buildings. And these buildings will have, they won't just think about how it looks aesthetically. Each line here, like this fencing at the top of the building, and you, say for instance you clicked on it, it could tell you what it's made of, potentially. It could tell you where it's sourced from. It could tell you how long you can access, until you can access that particular material. Um, all those sorts, of, the costs of the material, you see how that, by just clicking on that component in a, in a particular visualization, give you all this information. And that's what we mean by building information modeling. And to sort of broaden that out, we go from thinking of it as just an aesthetic, someone just drawing a building, a nice pretty picture by an architect. 
we can actually start to get into the 3D geometry of it. That's one advantage. So you can see, you know, the you know, the length, breadth, width type sort of information and the geometry of, of, of what the building looks like and all those individual components. I start to introduce this idea where you can think how long it would take to build all this because you could start to think about each component and sourcing that information of, of where you would get it from. Sorry, sourcing where they get that materials from and which particularly might be different layers of, of thinking in terms of organizations that can get hold of those particular bits of material. You know, for instance, using Jib, it's the Jib company that, um, that have a control on that. But first off, you know, we can think in 3D geometry and the actual sort of mechanics and the engineering of the building. We can lay on top of that how long it would take because you're starting to click around and think through this whole structural consideration of, of sourcing, uh, sourcing materials over time how much each individual item would cost. So you could sort of break down point by point. A lot of you guys are looking at by an area sort of costing, but this isn't actually looking at individual material type sort of way of costing things out. And then you can start to sort of get into more um, nebulous type conversations, but important conversations like sustainability. Where is this material sourced from, for example? Is it local? Is it global? Is it thinking through the sort of sustainability components that might be important to whoever commissions this project, especially as your design philosophy might be a sustainability type design philosophy that we sort of, I sort of steered you towards as a, as a way of thinking this through. So by clicking on this and thinking through all the materials are from, I choose that example if they're locally sourced or not, that's going to be a sustainability consideration. There might be sustainability rankings to certain materials in terms of how much embodied carbon, i.e what energy it took to build that fencing or built that flooring or built that particular steel structure. Um, and then there's the sort of the facility management component as well. So even when you're doing the build out, you'd be thinking about, well, how is it maintained? So if you if there's a, if there's a lift in there and we can find our way and spin this particular uh, building around and zoom in and start to uh, consider, say, lift shafts and how lifts work, you can start to think ahead in terms of how you maintain the lift, for instance, and who would maintain it and how much it would cost. If, for instance, you use like a super high quality lift or a, you know, a real cheapo lift, of what it would cost longer term to maintain it. And that sort of start to build in ideas of, of, of you know, moving back to sort of um, time cost and quality, I suppose. But there's a sort of a thinking ahead to once it's built out, the, the maintenance and the operating of the project. So that's how I think people get really excited in the construction world about this BIM stuff because you can really, really drill down to individual components and think about time, cost, management, etc. <clears throat> that sound good? So if someone says BIM to you, you've got a better idea of what, what we mean by that. And then when we say stages six and seven, on this slide, remember we're going back to the miles and bearings. So this is construction and commissioning, i.e. starting, i.e. people moving in to the particular and using the particular um, developments, people moving into your townhouses, for instance. And there's a lot of um, ways in which good risk management as part of construction management can, can help costs and, and, and all the other um, aspects that might fall into play if risk isn't considered. 
Um, and these are ways in which construction managers can think about risk, and I'm sure you guys are thinking about risk as, top, as part of your assignment three. So things like retentions, so we're talking there about retaining particular organizations or particular contractors and making sure, you know, certain companies might go bust or they might not be able to do the work for whatever reason. So there's a certain retention, certain, some of those uh, outsourced organizations might have certain um, employment issues and, and make sure they've got key workers to work in the project. So it's sort of for the construction manager to keep that dialogue with these companies to make sure that there isn't a churn and there isn't uh, problems with retention. Union relations, I suppose this is going to be a particular interest if it's the strong unions and construction unions that are part of the project. Active supervision is going to help mitigate the risk. Uh, insurance considerations in advance is going to start to blanket consider anything that goes wrong. Accounting systems. Early involvement in facilities managers, thinking long term about how it's maintained and operated. Uh, it's going to reduce the risk of it when actually you turn the lights on. Again, the facilities manager is trying to maintain something and make sure the lights are all working and functioning. If they're not early on involved in the process, you might not be looking ahead at those issues early on. Um, contract management, good contract management, pre-leases, pre-sales, and strong leases. So these are sort of ideas around how that risk management component of construction management can be um, improved. Fairly straightforward. And then we're sort of towards the back end, really, of this uh, project delivery consideration. This is a sort of the contract administration stuff. Um, I like this point about um, you know, the construction industry is, uh, you know, we talk of development is very entrepreneurial, so there's a lot of um, conversations that go on, there's a lot of stakeholder engagement. In construction, it's, a lot of it comes down to time and money and making sure that the sufficient quality is met given the time and money constraints. So this dog-eat-dog -dog mentality I've got mates in the construction industry. Um, they're real hard asses, and they really, really will let someone know if they're doing something wrong. If it's going to impact on their bottom line, they'll get very, very angry about things costing their wallet. You probably sort of imagine what that's like on a construction site if someone's doing something wrong that's going to potentially cost lots of money uh, for the firm. So. Disputes are, are rife because of this, and there's always that tension because people are sort of, you know, having that um, adversarial sort of approach to making sure that things are done. It's a sort of a very transactional approach. I've paid you to do this, so I expect this to be done. It's not thinking about long-term relationships at times. You know, it's like, well, this is this is what the contract says, and I'm going to get angry and do something about this if it's wrong. Um, so there's ways in which that can be sort of dealt with in terms of those sorts of. So, uh, yeah, and there's a little laundry list there of, of potential things that um, people might get angry about. There's those sorts of progress payments. So if people aren't getting paid, considering they've got to a certain point in the construction process. Damages, who, who's to blame for the damages? There'll be a lot of pass, uh, book passing on, oh, well, that wasn't us, that was such and such, he knocked that over. Or that, oh, that's, that's those subbies, they may create that, that problem. Yeah, about quality of workmanship, Sure, you can sort of envisage all these sorts of arguments that are at play, delays and, and variations. Or well, we said you were meant to do this and you did that. So there's those sorts of considerations. And it's how you overcome this, how you mitigate this, well, through various legislation, which is um, something that's going to have to be ideally avoided, but um, might be inevitable in some instances. And then other ways in terms of 
partnering. So this is going back to the delivery methods that we talked about. If there's a partnership, there's a buy-in by all parties at the start of the project, so that'll probably reduce the chances of this sort of adversarial and um, litigation that comes through. Um, and improving workplace practices, you know, all this health and safety. I'm sure a lot of people get upset, and I can hear my friend in the construction business getting angry about all his workers. He has to buy them all these health and safety gear. They have to take time off to take breaks. Oh, it's health and safety, rah, rah, rah. Um, but by having that in place, it might actually uh, reduce particular disputes in the longer term or, or deal with these particular disputes in the shorter term um, because there's, there's legislation around it that, that helps um, deal with those adversarial problems. So this is a nice, easy set of points, really, in terms of managing disputes. Well, obviously, court action should be avoided. You don't want to get to a situation where it's a multi-million dollar lawsuit that's in play. Uh, when it could be settled out of court or could be resolved um, amicably for very little money. So I suppose court action is usually avoided by both parties. Um, uh, but it does, in some instances, obviously there's adjudication that might take place and sit within a particular act, like the um, Building Works Act, you know, the 2004 one we, we talked about. Um, so there's ways in which uh, particular legal authorities can say what's going to happen between the two parties that were aggrieved. Uh, and then there'd be a, a process that takes place. This could take lots of time, and there's going to have to be considerations of, of how long this is going to take, not just the financial consideration. And then there's going to be an adjudicator that makes a decision. So that's just a slide about how this could happen. Uh, but for us as developers, we're going to want to make sure that this piece in the puzzle, the construction component, is, is smoothed out and that it doesn't create a blockage to the wider development considerations of selling the units and making sure the money comes in and that you pay your financiers because if you don't do that the whole development falls down and that might theoretically all fall down because there's a dispute between um, a contractor and a subcontractor that the construction manager should have smoothed out in the first place so hopefully you can see how we can zoom in and out of the development process now here we've zoomed in to that construction uh, consideration and, and all that's um, part in terms of the, the delivery that's the delivery, it's all built out, and then it's time to turn the lights on and uh, everyone starts to use the particular property, in your instance, the townhouse. At this point, we sort of say, well, um, it might be the point where implementation of a, a marketing plan, we need to sell it, but you guys are ahead of the game. You might be doing some pre-sales, you might be doing some off-plan stuff to enable some cash to come into the development process early on so you don't have to borrow as much money which means that you might be able to do more because you're borrowing less uh, from the banks in relative to, to the whole cost because you're getting cash injection early on. Uh, other sort of niggles, snagging lists that I'm sure construction people will talk about, you know, fixing any defects. You know, there'll be a big push to make sure that everything's built out, but some of the, the light fittings might, might not be right. You know, you think about the Wymery building uh, here on campus, you know, that was all, we had to get it all done for a certain amount of time, but there was always going to be some snagging lists for those students who have been taught in that class, I don't know if you guys have, there'll be lots of things that just don't work, <laughs> so there's going to be little defects that need to be fixed out. Connecting up the utilities, so making sure that power, water, um, comms, in terms of, sort of internet, all those sorts of things have to be connected up, turned on, uh, and making sure that you know once you get into that built out, it's people moving in, so it's people actually signing up to own their particular 
part of the building. It might be some of the, say if you had four units in your townhouses, there might be two people who are signing up, sale and purchase agreement, or there might be some people like investors who are sort of signing up to own that, but sub, you know, sublet it out. Uh, so there's that sort of final sales and purchase type sort of component that's, that's allied to uh, those that are buying them as, as, as investment properties as well. And that's so remember when you see the word commissioning, we're just talking about that, the wrap up sort of phase, you know, uh, making it live, making it uh, all come together and function, I suppose is the key word there, isn't it? When we say 